0: Hello, and welcome to Behind the Horror. Scary movie fans, such as myself, will hear that a movie is based on a true story. A few of them we already know, but most, well, we never go on to find out just what that true story is. So, in this series, we will explore and find out exactly what the true story is behind the movies we love. The 2011 movie, The Afflicted, starts us off with a birthday party for a young teen girl surrounded by her siblings and her parents. Later that night, the father attempts to sneak out of the house to leave his family. The wife wakes up and a fight ensues they go outside where she eventually attacks him and kills him she then ties a rope around his arms attaches that to the back of her car then drags him just to make sure he's dead she then disposes of the body we later see her watching a local preacher on tv while drinking vodka straight out of the bottle It is obvious that she is deeply religious. The preacher on the TV sings gospel songs and says he needs money, but once the camera's off, we see him speaking to like an assistant and he's cussing stating he needs a new job. The next morning, we see the mother sitting on the floor rocking and crying as one of her daughters brings her some kind of liquor. The daughter informs her that the owner of the liquor store says he will no longer be able to sell the daughter liquor on behalf of her mother. So her mother like launches up off the floor and begins to beat her daughter with a belt. She then begins to smother her own daughter with a pillow, but then finally relents and lets her go. Then we see the mother later forced to get up and answer her phone, only to realize she has to go to the police station to pick up another one of her daughters who is currently reporting that she and her siblings are horribly abused and that their mother is having auditory hallucinations. Once the mother arrives and gives her obviously well-rehearsed statement about how her husband recently abandoned her and the children and so on, and the teen daughter is released back to the mother. Once they get back home, the daughter gets beat with a wooden board in front of her siblings, they themselves feeling powerless to stop it because they know they'd get beat too. The mother decides to make the, quote, snitch daughter her number one target. She is made to read the numbers on the scale to tell her mother how much she weighs, followed by her mother's wrath that the, quote, numbers just keep going up, unquote. You see, the mother is also obsessed with her weight and has convinced herself that one of her daughters is the reason that she is gaining that her looks are fading and since the family now has serious money issues as the mother won't leave the house she demands one of her daughters to go out and prostitute herself and bring the money home she forces the girls to eat this weird combination of something mixed with lard and other disgusting food she literally mashes this mixture into their mouths. It becomes very obvious that the mother is having a psychotic break. The situation escalates until the mother shoots her own daughter in the head with a gun. What happens next? Well those of you that have seen the movie know, and the rest will just have to watch to find out. This movie has a cheese factor, but the acting is pretty good considering it's a lower budget film. This story is based on the story of Teresa Noor, so let's start at the beginning. Teresa Cross was born on March 14, 1946 in Sacramento, California. Her parents were James Cross and Swanee Myers Cross. Teresa was the youngest of two daughters between them. Now Swanee had a son, William and a daughter Clara from a previous marriage but her husband died unexpectedly in 1939. She met James, and a while after, they got married. James worked as an assistant cheesemaker at Sacramento's Golden State Dairy. Swanee worked at a local lumber mill. The couple then went on to have rosemary, and then Teresa was last. The couple worked hard and was able to save enough money to buy a house in Rio Linda, California, which is a northern suburb of Sacramento. At one point, Rio Linda had been a flag stop for the Northern Electric Railroad. It's a small town with a small population, but it was home. And then Teresa's father, when she was around 11 to 12 years old, began to have some troubling symptoms. So he finally went to the doctor and was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease and had to quit his job. Now Parkinson's disease, for those of you who are not aware, is a nervous system disorder that affects movement and it progressively gets worse. Symptoms are minor at first and include uncontrollable shaking and tremors, slowed movement balance difficulties and eventual problems standing up and stiffness in the limbs. While Parkinson's is in and of itself not fatal, it continues to get worse and worse and it causes symptoms that can be life-threatening and there is no cure. Now it has been said that he developed depression and was extremely frustrated and angry both of which he took out on his family. Now, I'm not sure if he was able to get some kind of disability insurance payments, though the disability insurance program with benefits was first payable in 1957, so the program was there. What sources say is that Swanee worked and provided the income for her family. Then, when Teresa was 15 years old, her mother died from congestive heart failure, which devastated Teresa as she was very close to her mother. Money then became a very big issue and James was forced to sell their house. Not long after, Teresa, now 16 years old, met and very quickly married Clifford Clyde, who was 21 years old. She quit school, and the newlyweds moved into a one-bedroom apartment. It is reported that Teresa was extremely insecure and constantly accused her husband of having affairs, keeping her husband on a tight leash, which put a strain on their marriage from the beginning. She also became pregnant very quickly, and in July of 1963, she gave birth to a baby boy, Howard. So, the month before her son would turn a year old, she and her husband got into a huge fight. Teresa stated that her husband punched her in the face and went to file a police report. Teresa stated that her husband punched her in the face and went to file a police report, but she didn't want to press charges, so the issue was dropped. The next month, her husband decided to spend his birthday out with his friends instead of being at home with her. This, of course, started a fight to which he told her that he was leaving her. She was furious. She grabbed a rifle and shot him as he was walking out the door, killing him. She was, of course, arrested. She was pregnant with a daughter at this time. There was a trial. And Teresa stated her husband was a physically abusive alcoholic. Now his family came forward and said none of that was true and that she had just murdered him in cold blood. Teresa's own sister testified against her, saying she was possessive and jealous and that she had heard her sister tell her husband that she would kill him before any other woman could have him. And yet she was acquitted. The now 19-year-old Teresa took to drinking heavily while she was still pregnant, according to sources. She began hanging out at the local American Legion Hall and that's where she met Estelle Lee Thornsberry. He was an army veteran who unfortunately had suffered an accident while swimming that left him a quadriplegic, meaning he was paralyzed in both his arms and legs. But, you know, this didn't bother Teresa whatsoever, and the two began dating. She gave birth to her daughter, Sheila, a few months later. And even though the baby girl was not Thornberry's child, he absolutely loved that baby and doted on her. He suggested they all move in together and live as a family, and Teresa agreed. They rented an apartment, and life was good for a while. But then... Thornsbury began to see that Teresa was treating him more as the live in nanny rather than her partner. Then she committed the ultimate betrayal. She started sleeping with his best friend, and he found out. They fought, and Teresa packed up hers and her children's belongings, as well as quite a bit of Thornsbury's belongings, and moved in with a friend. Shortly after this, she began dating a U.S. Marine named Robert Nohr. She became pregnant quickly after and they married in 1966. A third child, Susan, was born two months after the wedding. Quickly after came two more children, William in 1967 and Robert in 1968. And you guys know it didn't take long for Teresa to go back to constantly accusing him of cheating on her and the fighting escalated until her husband left her in June of 1969. Though they were married, they did officially divorce in 1970 and she also gave birth to her sixth and final child, Terry, two months later. And though Robert wanted to see and spend time with his children, Teresa wouldn't allow it or would use their children against him to make him suffer. And this is what Teresa would do. If a relationship ended, she'd cut that person out completely as if they didn't exist and life would go on. Sources stated Teresa has borderline personality disorder, right? Which is what many experts actually believe Edmund Kemper's mother displayed signs of as well. So what does that look like? Some symptoms of borderline personality disorder include a fear of abandonment, unstable relationships, unclear or shifting self-image, impulsive and or self-destructive behaviors, self-harm, extreme emotional mood swings, chronic feelings of emptiness, explosive anger and feeling suspicious or out of touch with reality. Then within that umbrella diagnosis, there are subtypes of borderline personality disorder. There's discouraged borderline, there's the impulsive borderline, the petulant borderline, and finally the self-destructive borderline. It is my opinion that Teresa fits under the impulsive, borderline label. According to psychology today, these individuals tend to be flirtatious, captivating, elusive, and superficial. They are highly energetic and seek out thrill after thrill. They are easily bored and seem to have a never-ending appetite for attention and excitement. As the name implies, they will often act without thinking, getting themselves into all sorts of trouble. Such individuals can often be very charismatic, and it's easy to get caught in their spell. But she also fits in the discouraged, which displays as being clingy, walking around feeling somber and dejected. So her children had to deal with her issues as well, and they learned very quickly, that they were not immune to her mood swings. Her daughters actually got the worst of it. Teresa's sons were, for the most part, spared from her, quote, discipline. She physically, verbally, and psychologically abused her children. Teresa's next husband was a man named Ronald in 1971 who worked for the railroad she started leaving her children in his care so that she could go out drinking and partying. He divorced her the next year, convinced she was sleeping with other men. At the age of 30, Teresa married again in 1976 to a man named Chet, and one of her daughters actually grew close to and loved Chet, which made Teresa very jealous. And of course they divorced. You see, Teresa didn't like women in the first place, and at this point, her oldest daughters were nearing teenagers, and she was very jealous of their youth and beauty. Teresa felt that her own was fading. After her last divorce, she had been drinking so heavily and not taking care of herself that she had put on a considerable amount of weight, and her abuse escalated to her throwing steak knives and scissors at her own children. She had her sons help her carry out the physical abuse on their sisters. She took her children and moved into a two-bedroom apartment, but her oldest son, Howard, didn't go with them. He was old enough he could go. And her new neighbors noticed pretty quickly that the apartment was filthy and smelled heavily of urine. They noted that the children really never went outside to play as Teresa wouldn't allow it, and when they did see the children, they acted fearful and nervous, on edge. The abuse continued to escalate. She beat them, force fed them, put cigarettes out on their tender skin, and at one point she even held a gun to her youngest child, Terry's head, and threatened to pull the trigger. After one particularly cruel and horrific beating, Susan, her third child, who was 15 years old by this point, attempted to run away. She was, of course, found by the police under suspicion of being a runaway and for prostitution. Susan was taken to a psychiatric hospital where she pleaded with the staff to believe her that her mother was abusing her and her siblings. When questioned, Teresa said she most certainly did not abuse her, that Susan had mental issues, so the situation wasn't investigated any further and Susan was released into her mother's care. When they arrived back home, Teresa beat her and forced her other children to beat her too. Then, for a few weeks, she handcuffed Susan to her bed and ordered the other children to stand guard over her. Susan was not allowed to leave the house, and in fact, she forced her daughter to drop out of school. And this was the same, actually, for most of the children, who didn't get anything beyond an eighth-grade education. Teresa's drinking had gotten so bad that experts believe she developed substance-induced psychotic disorder. This is a condition that causes symptoms such as hallucinations or delusions brought on by substance abuse. The psychosis is usually always short-term, but if the substance abuse is very heavy, the psychosis can last for months or even years. Now, Teresa's sons were allowed to have after-school jobs and to hang out with their friends. The girls, of course, were kept inside nearly at all times. The boys, William and Robert, the only two boys left at home, through no real fault of their own, began to look at their sisters as objects instead of horridly abused people. So in June of 1983, Teresa began to believe that Susan was casting spells on her to make her gain weight, which of course Susan denied. The argument got heated. Teresa pointed a gun at her daughter's chest and shot her, then left her to die in the bathtub. Only she didn't die. Teresa, in a turn of events, and with the help of her other daughters, left susan in the bathtub of course but nursed her back to health with no medical treatment though the bullet was lodged in her back but the next year another argument and teresa grabbed a pair of scissors and stabbed susan in the back and yet again susan survived while teresa refused to get her medical treatment So Susan announced that she was going to move to Alaska, and her mother surprisingly said she could go, but she wanted to remove that bullet from her back first, so Susan couldn't use it as evidence sometime in the future against her for the abuse. So for whatever reason, Susan agreed. Teresa drugged her with liquor and antipsychotic medication, and she passed out. Then Teresa ordered her 15-year-old son, Robert, to use an X-Acto knife to retrieve the bullet, and he did. Susan woke up screaming in pain and within a few days developed sepsis and was delirious. While she was given antibiotics and pain reliever, none of it was helping. So Teresa tied Susan's hands and wrists together and put duct tape over her mouth. She put all of Susan's belongings in trash bags and ordered her sons to put Susan in their car. They stopped alongside of a road and the boys placed their sister there with her belongings. And then her own mother poured gasoline on her and set her on fire. Her body was found the next day and it was determined that she had still been alive while burning to death. But the authorities couldn't positively identify her, so she was labeled as a Jane Doe. So after Teresa murdered Susan, she turned her rage against Sheila, her second child, but her first daughter. Teresa forced her to prostitute herself for money. Teresa herself didn't work and was getting some form of welfare from the state and believe it or not due to Sheila bringing home an impressive amount of money Teresa was most pleased and actually allowed her to leave the house outside of the sex work of course but it didn't take long for Teresa to start accusing Sheila of being pregnant or having STDs that Teresa had convinced herself she had caught from the toilet seat Sheila denied all of it and pleaded with her mother, but her mother beat her, tied her hands and wrists, and threw her into a closet with no airflow, and it was extremely hot inside. The other children were told they were not allowed to open that closet for any reason. Terry, the youngest daughter, did sneak and give Sheila a beer, the only beverage that she could get a hold of and sneak away. Finally, Sheila, to end the torture, gave a fake confession and stated that, yes, she was pregnant and had an STD, which of course was not true. Only her mother decided she wasn't going to let her out. Sheila died three days later from dehydration and starvation. Her body was left in the closet for three more days to begin decaying. Teresa forced her sons to get rid of their sister's body, so they put her in a cardboard box and dumped it near a small airport. She was discovered just a few hours later, and she, just like Susan, wasn't able to be identified and was also labeled as a Jane Doe. But what was Teresa worried about? She was definitely concerned with the fact that the smell of Sheila's decomposing corpse was still lingering in the apartment. So she ordered her youngest, Terry, to burn down the apartment after she had moved everything out. Terry poured lighter fluid on the floor and set it on fire, but it did little to no damage as the neighbors immediately called for help. Side note, that closet was undamaged. After this, Teresa went into hiding and the rest of her surviving children cut all ties with their mother. The only child to stay with his mother was Robert Jr. He and Teresa fled to Las Vegas, but in November of 1991, Robert shot and killed a bartender during an attempted robbery and was sentenced to 16 years in prison. At that point, Teresa immediately fled to Salt Lake City, Utah. Now, during this time, Terry was trying to get the authorities to take her seriously while reporting both of her sisters' murders. She even called America's Most Wanted, so they advised her to call the county sheriff's office where one of the bodies was found. Finally, that department took her seriously they were able to match up evidence with the stories Terry was telling them. Robert Jr. was charged with murder while still serving his sentence in Las Vegas. Teresa was arrested in Salt Lake City and charged with two counts of murder, two counts of conspiracy to commit murder, and two other special circumstance charges. She pled not guilty at first, but struck up a deal after she found out Robert Jr. had agreed to testify against her. She changed her plea to guilty to be spared a death sentence. She was ultimately sentenced to two life sentences and is in the California Institution for Women in Chino, California, but she will be eligible for parole in 2027, and she will be 81 years old by then. Howard, the oldest child, testified to how horrible their childhood was. Robert Jr. was again in prison in Las Vegas and William was put on probation and ordered to attend therapy. Susan was murdered, Sheila was murdered, and Terry, the youngest child, died of heart failure in 2011. She was only 41 years old. Guys, what a sad and horrific story. A mother's love is supposed to be all encompassing, protective, and nurturing. A mother's first and most primal priorities should be her children and not herself, her sex life, and dive bars. I, on some level, experienced some of this myself, so I understand. And when you are raised in a hostile environment, were beatings and bars, being left with people to have a God knows what happened to you, and multiple stepfathers in and out of the picture. What hope did her children have at believing a normal life was even possible? Thanks for listening.